Open your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We are working through these chapters here, especially in the last night of our Lord Jesus. Five chapters deal with the last evening of our Lord, and we've arrived at John chapter 16. Really, one of the most remarkable passages in all of the Gospels, because the passage in front of us represents the longest direct explanation of the person of the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible. Did you know that? If you want to study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, there are four passages in your Bible that explain at length. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit to explain the Holy Spirit. I've just told you one, John 16. Can any of you name any of the other four passages that explain the Holy Spirit? That is, if you want to understand the Holy Spirit, you should know one of these four. I'm going to give them to you, but let's see if anyone can pull them out. Not you. I know you know. Galatians chapter 5. Well done, brother. Galatians chapter 5. When we did our series on the fruit of the Spirit, everyone knows the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, but actually it starts back in verse 14, and it's 14 to 25 that deal with the Holy Spirit. Anyone else? Good job. Galatians 5 and, um, and John 16. Go ahead. Acts 2. Not Acts 2. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Yeah, well done. That's one of the three, one of the four. And then Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Those passages were especially given to explain the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But of all those passages, this one is the most direct. For example, Romans chapter 8 that I just mentioned does not directly deal with the Holy Spirit, but deals with his work in helping us to kill our sin. Galatians chapter 5, interestingly enough, deals with the exact same topic. How is it that by the power of the Spirit, you can kill the works of the flesh? 1 Corinthians 12 deals with how is it that the Holy Spirit gives gifts? But this passage deals with the person of the Spirit and his work more completely than any passage in the Bible. So we're going to give ourselves to this passage. I'm planning right now for the next three weeks. We'll see. Sometimes being guided by the Spirit, we may take more time. But we'll see. The plan is for three weeks, and we'll see how it works out. And what we need to understand is that actually... 75% of the Bible had already been revealed by the time that Jesus spoke these words. That means that God desired to reveal Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the laws of Moses, before revealing clearly the full explanation of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's mentioned, Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. He's there, just hints and shadows, as if you go to Kruger and you're looking for that lion, and wait, there he was. Oh, he went behind that tree. Oh, there, there, maybe, oh, I can't, was that a shadow? That's how you see the glorious picture of the third person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. He's there, but he's there, wait. But in the new covenant, when our Lord comes to live and die, he does not speak of him until the night before he dies. And the night before he dies, he wants to reveal to us specifically the works 
of the Spirit of God. Now, what is happening in this passage? You recall, right? If you've been with us each week, our Lord is preparing his disciples for when he leaves. Beginning in John chapter 13, verse 33, he sent out Judas and he says, I'm going to leave you. He tells them again in verse 36. This is John chapter 13, verse 36. I'm going to leave you. John chapter 14, verse 2. I'm leaving you. Verse 3, I'm leaving you. And if you'll underline the number of times in 13, 14, 15, 16, and chapter 17 that he tells them, I'm leaving them, it's repeated. One of the most constant themes in the last night of our Lord is Jesus wants to make it clear. I'm leaving. A big event is coming. And he's speaking most of those times about his death on the cross. Here he is speaking about his death on the cross when he says he's going to leave them. And now he wants to reveal more of that great plan that was arranged by the Father before the worlds were formed. Which is why in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says he's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. How can that be? In Revelation 13, 8, their names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. How can that be? Ephesians 1 verse 11, he has these counsels, these divine counsels from before the world. How can these things be? Jesus is going to reveal just a little portion. And one of the great wonders of heaven will be to enter a real school. And he will teach us for all eternity the wonders of his grace. And here he's going to show us a little portion of it. So at his death, he must leave them so that the Holy Spirit can come. So I ask you this, why must he leave in order to send the Spirit? Why doesn't he send the Holy Spirit before he leaves? What mother is going to leave the children before the babysitter comes? What manager of a business is going to say, I'm leaving on holiday for two months and I'm going to go and then a week later, then the new guy's going to come and watch while I'm gone. Why does Jesus leave before sending the Spirit? Why is it that the Holy Spirit can't come immediately? Why do the disciples even need the Spirit What will he do? If I ask you, what are the works of the Holy Spirit? Could you tell me, by God's grace, before you leave today, in the next 40 minutes, I hope you'll be able to tell me what the works of the Spirit are. So our passage breaks into two parts. Verses 5, 6, and 7. That's the condition or the background or the setting For sending the Holy Spirit. And then verses 8 to 14 are the actual explanation of this gracious, powerful spirit. Now for the last 100 years, actually 120, there has been a renewed interest among Christians in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Beginning with the Azusa Street Revival in California in 1900, when Agnes Oseman spoke in tongues. And from that time, with the birth of Pentecostalism from 1900 to 1960, the Pentecostal church was the only denomination, at least that's recorded in history, maybe there were others, but what's recorded in history, that was speaking in tongues from 1900 to 1960. In 1960, a South African who had moved to California... In America, a man named Bennett 
said, they've been speaking in tongues in the Pentecostal churches, but now they need to speak in tongues in all the churches. And in 1960, 60 years after the Azusa Street Revival, tongues and other manifestations were begun, begun to be seen in other denominations, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Anglican, and many others. And then in the 1980s, a man named Peter Wimber, John Wimber, I'm sorry, not Peter Wimber, John Wimber wrote a book entitled Power Evangelism. And in that book in the 1980s, again from California, in the 1980s he said, if you want to have power in evangelism, you need to have miracles. And thus began the third wave of the Holy Spirit entitled Signs and wonders. So we have the Pentecostal movement from 1900 to 1960. And then we have the charismatic movement from 1960 to the 1980s. And then the third wave from the 1980s stretching into today. And then there's a fourth wave. Because beginning with John Wimber, there were other authors like John Hagee who began to promote the idea of what's called the word faith movement. And the word faith movement adds onto it prosperity, and the little God's doctrine, that we are actually God because we were made in his image and we have his authority to speak like a God. Those are the four main movements in the last 100 years where many churches and many people have said, hey, we're seeing the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, do We know what Jesus taught. Lord willing, for the next three weeks, we are going to devote ourselves to understanding word by word what Jesus taught. Let's try to do it. So we have two sections in our sermon this morning. The first is the background, verses 5 to 7, and the second is the work. This is an introductory sermon. Next week, I'll do verses 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, and then I'll do verses 12 and 13, and then one week on verse 14, Lord willing, we'll see how it goes. And the main point of the message is right here. Are you ready for the great message? This is the summary of the whole sermon today. When Christ died on the cross, when he died, He opened the way for the greatest gift to the world, his own Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, do you love the Spirit of God? Do you pray to the Spirit? Do you fast and pray and say, God, I need the power of the Spirit of God. I hope that no one here will be in danger of neglecting or grieving or passing by this wonderful, greatest of all gifts ever given. Let's see, first of all, the necessary conditions of the background. Look in verse 5. But now I go my way to the one who sent me. And none of you are asking me, where are you going? When he says, I go my way, he's referring to his death. I know that for several reasons. First of all, look back in verse 2. What does Jesus prophesy in verse 2? Look down in chapter 16, verse 2. What does he prophesy in verse 2? They're going to ostracize you socially. They'll put you out of the synagogues. And what's the second thing they're going to do to you? They're going to kill you. His context is persecution, and he's preparing them for persecution. So in verse 5, the context is persecution. 
Secondly, I know that he's speaking about his death because that's the context of the entire evening. Starting in John chapter 13, verse 33 that I quoted a few moments ago. He's talking about his death. And he says, I must go to the Father who sent me. He's already told them repeatedly he's got to go. But notice this most telling statement in verse 5. None of you have even asked me, where are you going? What does our Lord mean with that? He means the disciples were cold and indifferent. Luke chapter 22 is a parallel passage to this one. In Luke 22, we have the upper room discourse, but it's very short. But there's a detail, there's several details in the Luke passage that are not in this passage. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, it says, And there was a dispute about them, which of them would be the greatest. But that dispute did not happen until after Jesus gave the wine and the bread. Jesus had already given the juice representing his blood, the the bread representing his body. Judas had already been gone. His disciples had already had the Lord's table. And after that glorious presentation of his own blessed work on the cross, he's going to say, I'm going to be the best. You, you couldn't preach your way out of a cardboard box. Me, ha, you should have heard me when I preached. Everyone in Capernaum came to listen. They were standing outside their houses to hear me preach. What about you? They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the night before he dies. Some commentators believe that Luke 22 verse 24 happened while they were walking on their way. Because in chapter 14, John 14, the last verse of the chapter, he says, stand up, let's leave here. And they're now walking on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, that two kilometers or so. And as they walk out and walk on their way, every footfall is heavy for our Lord Jesus. And the disciples behind him are saying, who's the best preacher? Our Lord says, I've told you 10 times, I'm going to die. I've sent out Judas. He's filled with Satan's power. I've told you about the comforter who's going to come with strength. And you don't even care about any of it. You're not even asking me, hey, uh, what's happening? They did ask some things in chapter 14, but the things they asked were about themselves. Look in verse number six. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. What things? If you have a pen, circle that phrase, these things. Go back in verse 1. Do you find it there in verse 1? Look in verse 2. You won't find it. Look in verse 3. Do you see it? Verse 4. Do you find it again? How many times in verse 4? Twice in verse 4. How many times total do we have it? Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 4, verse 6. It's the same Greek expression. Each time our Lord says, I'm trying to tell you these things. I'm teaching you. I have this body of doctrine to deliver to you. And you have your ears closed. You're disinterested. You're fighting about who's going to have a better house in heaven. Who's going to have the bigger name? The problem was this. The disciples were selfish in the face of the Son of God. The greatest teacher who ever lived. The greatest preacher passing all others. And the disciples were selfish. They should have been focused on Christ. 
You remember those five solas? The first one is the Bible alone, and the second one, Christ alone. All true churches from all history have always preached the Bible alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to God alone be glory. It doesn't matter the name of your church. It matters the doctrine of your church. If you teach Christ alone, if you exalt him, if you say I love him and live for him and die for him, his commandments are written on my heart. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. If his commandments are written on your heart, John chapter 14 verse 15, you say you're my friend, obey my commandments. Those ones who are bound up with Christ are his people. And Jesus rebukes them. He's going to the cross. Judas is coming because our Lord knows it all. He knows where Judas is. He knows where the 200 or 400 soldiers are who are coming along with other of the rabble from the chief priests. He knows where those people are. He knows the weapons they have. He knows that Peter will take out the sword and cut off Malchus' ear. He knows all of those things. And the disciples, though they've been taught, are cold, sluggish, disinterested, and thinking about themselves. You know the mark of a false preacher when he gathers up the people's affections and returns them to themselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, said, there's one test for good preaching. Does the preacher give you a sense that God is present? He's consumed with God. He's taken up with God, not himself, not even the world. He cares about the world and loves the world as it might bring glory and honor to God. But his own concerns and distractions are minor points to him. It's God who occupies his mind and his heart. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit that we're going to see. Have you noticed that in verse 14? What does the Holy Spirit do in verse 14? He glorifies Christ. The Holy Spirit has this great work to do, which we'll come to in time. You see, all true religion is that religion that turns away from yourself and to the Lamb. All true religion lifts up Christ on the cross, which is why the false teachers will take pictures of themselves and exalt themselves, even they'll blow up the pictures to the size of the door. There's a church in this town where the man's face is the size of the door. But in John 16, he says, your problem is you're thinking about yourself. You haven't been concerned about I'm dying. You haven't asked me. I'm the son of God and I could tell you all and you don't care. Brothers and sisters, look into your own heart. Isn't that your problem? It's mine. I don't love him. I have my mind pulled to so many things. Even this morning, I had such a blessed time of prayer and pleading for each of you. Many of you, I didn't know you, dear brother and sister, would be with us today. I was praying for those of you who would come. And Steve, I didn't know you were coming either, brother. Glad to see you. But each of the rest of you, I prayed for you. And then I walked out, saw my wife, and was distracted in moments. Aren't we like that? We are so easily distracted from the greatest things. We look at our children and we laugh at them or we rebuke them because did you forget what I just said? And aren't we like that? The greatest thing in all the world is before us. And we're going to go home and turn on a wafer of technology, a very large wafer, on our wall. And we will have forgotten about Christ by the second advert. 
Our Lord rebukes them. But I'm spending time on this because this is the background to the coming of the Spirit. Do you notice that Jesus has been with them for three years? He's made how many disciples? Twelve. Minus one for Judas. He's a son of perdition. That's eleven. Are there any others? Well, in Acts chapter one, how many are in the upper room? 120. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, well, Jesus was seen by about 500 brothers. So some people think there's about 500 Christians at the time that Jesus died. That's the biggest number. It might be less. It might be 100. Let's say 500. But notice when the Spirit of God comes. In one day, how many people are converted? 3,000. Two days later, how many people? 5,000. 5,000. What the Holy Spirit does in a week, Jesus didn't do in three years. This is all preparation. This, verses 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is revealing to them. He's not asking for pity. He's not even saying to them, come on, talk to me about me. Talk to me about the cross. Let me teach you the doctrine of soteriology. Let me explain propitiation, imputation, justification, and sanctification. He's not saying that to the disciples. He's trying to to let them understand the real poverty of their own hearts. You disciples, I've been with you for three years as the son of God. I spoke like no one else has ever talked. Remember, the Roman guards came to take him. But when they came to take him, they said... We never heard a guy talking like that. We're not going to put it. You want to go? You take him. I'm not taking him. You send someone else to take him. I'll quit before I touch that one. They could tell he was a brilliant teacher. He was powerful. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. All the people loved him because he taught with authority, not like the scribes. But our Lord is drawing their attention to this. Notice that what I have not done in three years... There is one coming who will do in a week. Have we honored the Holy Spirit the way he should be honored? Have we hoped and prayed and seen our need for spiritual power? That is one of our great problems. We have empty churches. We have children who are falling away. We have divorce among professing Christians. We have men who go for a week without reading their Bibles. People who go for a year. We have African Christians who call themselves Christians who are actually more afraid of witchcraft than they are of Jehovah. And we have white Christians who call themselves Christians who are far more concerned about the rhinos being poached or the falling rand or the fact that the streets aren't clean like they were in 1990 than you are about the Bible. And yet we say, oh, we're Christians. May God deliver us from this. We are in the position that the Lord spoke. uh, We are in the position that the disciples were in when the Lord spoke to them in verses 5 and 6. But notice in verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is better for you that I go away. How can that be? For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come to you. That's interesting. The phrase will not in Greek, it's a double negative. He wants, it's like saying he'll never, it's not possible, never happen. Ume, that's two negatives, not, not, can't, can't come, don't think it will happen. Why is that the case? Why could the Holy Spirit not come until Jesus died? 
And the answer is found in Hebrews 9.14. But you could have known it already if you've been reading your Old Covenant and read the book of Leviticus where we sleep through the book of Leviticus and turn the pages quickly, but it's full of gospel truth. The first seven chapters explain the sacrifices. And if we would read those chapters carefully, we would understand Hebrews 9.14 where it says, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself to God. Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the cross of Christ are inseparably connected. And the Holy Spirit had an unusual interest in the cross of Christ. And there was a connection between the cross and the coming of the Spirit. Because one of the great blessings purchased at the cross was the gift of the Spirit. Acts chapter 4. That is, when Christ died on the cross, he purchased many things, including the conversion of all the old covenant believers like Abel. Righteous Abel, Jesus says in Matthew 23. Jesus purchased the conversion of Abel and Noah and Abraham and Rahab on the cross. And it worked retroactively backward. And he also purchased a great many things into the future. And one of the great things he purchased on the cross was the coming of the Spirit. He, the Spirit cannot come until the cross has happened because he waits for the atoning sacrifice and if you did not catch that cross-reference, it's Hebrews 9, verse 14. So I ask you this, what could be better than the physical presence of Jesus Christ? Could you imagine, Dorothy, living with Jesus in your home? Every difficulty would go right to him, wouldn't you? And when your faith shakes, you would go right to him. And when you have a problem with your children, you'd say, Can you, what would you do here? And when you don't understand the Bible, you'd go right to him, wouldn't you? On the authority, no less than the Son of God, I tell you, there's something greater than that. It's the Holy Spirit's presence. How can this possibly be? Number one, because the works that the Spirit performs are so important. We have not counted them important, but they are vitally important. Number two, why is, how is the Holy Spirit better than the physical presence of Jesus? Number one, the works that he does are so vital and important. Just a moment here, a comment. Do you understand clearly the economic trinity? The economic trinity is the word that theologians use to categorize the different works of the members of the trinity. Which one of the members of the trinity died? Don't ever pray foolishly or thoughtlessly and say, Father, I thank you that you... Don't say that. Because it's not true. And I've heard pastors say that. It's not a true statement. Thank God that the Father planned and arranged to send His Son. Thank the Son for being willing to take a body. The Father did not take a body. Christmas is about the Son, not the Father. Although, of course, there is a connection, a glorious connection. What works does the Spirit do? I'm going to tell you just now. But those works that the Spirit does are not the works done by the Son. There are some works that they all do together. They all forgive sin together. They all created the world together. They all sustain the world. They all providentially work in the world. There's cross-references for all those things. But there are also references that the Spirit only does this and none of the others do it. And the Son only does this. And the easiest example there is only the Son died on the cross. No one else died on the cross. Only the Son. And there are works that only the Father does. When we understand that clearly, we will praise 
the three in one more consistently. One of the reasons our praise praise is so poor is that our mind is uneducated biblically. We're illiterate. Let's correct that in part right now. So number one, how can it be that the Holy Spirit is better than Jesus Christ? Answer number one, because his works are so important. Answer number two, because the Holy Spirit is especially close to believers. Go back to chapter 14, verse 17. You're in John 16. Just turn back a page to John 14, verse 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him, neither does it. The world does not know the Holy Spirit. But you believers know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. Future tense. He will be. When I die and have purchased his... uh, His sealing and anointing work, he will be in you. That's coming. The Holy Spirit will dwell specially in believers. The Father is never said to dwell in believers the way the Spirit does. The Spirit is said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, to baptize all believers into himself. He's both the baptizer and he's the water in which you're baptized. In Ephesians 5 verse 18, you must be filled with the Spirit. How so? What's that filling like? Oh, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The comparison there, the contrast is actually a comparison. Don't get drunk. Don't fill your body with alcohol You know the way alcohol works. It comes in and affects your mind. It affects your body. They can take a blood test out of your arm and find alcohol content. Because that alcohol is going to go into all of you. And in the same way, in a kind of similarity, you must be filled with the Spirit. He must come into all the parts of you. Mind, will, heart, passions, memory. He's got to come into everything of you. He's got to control your hand. He's got to control your feet, your ears, your eyes. Someone said that, this is a, 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 not a true story, but it communicates a good point. A man went to be baptized, and as he was baptized, he held his wallet above the water. He said, this part doesn't need to be baptized. But the teaching of Ephesians 5.18 is that when you are filled with the Spirit, everything you have is touched and affected and controlled by his dominating power. Or in Galatians 5.16 You walk with the Spirit. Have you pondered that? Walking with God. That's that's Genesis chapter 5 with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. I believe that Enoch walked with the Holy Spirit. There was a walking, a communion with the Spirit. And of course, in Romans 8 verse 26, the Spirit of God hears our prayers, translates our prayers, and then prays for us. To the Son, who four or five verses later takes the prayers translated by the Spirit and presents them to the Father. What a glorious work that's done. The Spirit is unusually close. He's unusually united to believers. And that's how he's, in a greater way, helping us than even the person of Christ. Notice in verse 5, what does Jesus do in verse 5? What is he doing? What is the Lord Jesus doing in verse 5? 
He's going to death. That's the office of a priest. He's dying for the sins of his people. Notice in verse 6, what is he doing? He's talking, I said these things to you. He's teaching them, that's the office of a prophet. Notice verse 7. What does he do in verse 7? It's a longer verse. Look at the end of verse 7. At the end of verse 7, what's the last thing Jesus does in verse 7? He sends the Spirit. The Spirit is God. You don't send God unless you have unusual authority. That's the office of a king. The work of Christ's prophetic ministry, his priestly ministry, and his kingly ministry are pictured right here. And they're paralleled and complemented by the Holy Spirit. Now, with a few moments left, let's just examine. Now, what we've seen is this so far. We've seen that our Lord is going to die. And we've seen that the disciples are distracted. They're concerned about themselves and the world and all manner of things on the earth. They're fighting over the most foolish and childish squabbles. And that's when our Lord says this. Do you have an ESV? What's the first word in verse 7 in the ESV? Nevertheless. If you have a King James, it's going to say, but. The Greek word is the word but, Allah. Not the Arabic word for God, but the Greek word for but. And it can be translated as nevertheless. What he's saying here is, you disciples are acting in this way. Now turn from the way you're looking and look this way. That's the reason the ESV translates it as nevertheless, or the King James. He's trying to show contrast with connection. The NASB translates it as but. But that doesn't quite show the idea of contrast and connection. Nevertheless is an easier translation, even though it takes a little liberty. But it tells us here, oh, there is a connection with the previous verses. Because you people have this spiritual condition, then connected to that, turn your eyes away from that condition and look at this. Now, but, nevertheless, I need to tell you something. Here's a truth that you need to learn. It's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, the comforter will not come to you. If you have a pen, you can put a box around. I told you to circle these things. You can put a box around or underline the word comforter. Then in verse 8, what's the second work of the Holy Spirit? Convict. Convict or convince, depending on your translation. So comforting in verse number 7. Convicting in verse number 8 or convincing. In verse number 13, what's the word? It starts with a G. What's the work of the Holy Spirit? Guide. Put a box around that one. In verse 14, what's the word? It begins with a G. Glorify. We have here four works of the Holy Spirit listed. Now, you'll recall, back in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said, I'm going to send the comforter. In John 14, verse 26, for the second time, while he's in the house, he says, I'm going to send you a comforter. And then in John 15, verse 26, while they're walking through the garden, looking at the vines and the branches and the fruit, and talking about the vines and the branches, then he says, 
in order to bring this fruit, I'm going to send you a comforter. It's the third time he's told them about the comforter. Now in chapter 16, verse 7, he for the fourth time says, I'm sending you the comforter. You disciples are fearful. You're introverted. You're focused on yourself. And what you're going to need is this comforter. We spent an entire sermon in chapter 14, verse 26 on the comforter. Do you remember what I said then? Should I preach that sermon again next week? The comforter is the one who comes with strength. It's the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. It's the one found in Homer's Iliad when uh, used of um, Achilles, the great hero who has to come alongside and help the troops. He's the one who comes with strength. In Latin, comfort is with strength. The comforter is not the one who comes and pats you on the back and says, sorry, 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 wananga, sorry, wananga. That's not the comforter. The comforter is the one who says, oh, you're fighting in the battle? Here's your AK-47. Oh, you're fighting in the battle? Here's the keys to the tank. It's right there. Oh, you're fighting in the battle? Here's a box of bullets. Oh, you're fighting in the battle? Let me give you a sword and a shield and a helmet. The comforter is the one who says, let me wrap up your wounds so you can get out and fight again. The comforter is not the one who says, oh, you want to relax. Let me give you a footstool to put your feet up. Oh, you need a Coke? I'm coming just now. We have this foolish and it's even wicked and blasphemous idea that the Holy Spirit's great ministry to us is to make us happy and fat. The Holy Spirit's great work is to give you ammunition to fight with your sin, to kill your sin. And that's the summary of the previous sermon. Because I gave that one, I'm not planning to preach again on the comforter, although I'd be glad to. If you want me to, you let me know today. and I'll plan that one for next week. But we see these four works. There's the comforter, the coming with strength, the giving power to fight. Oh, by the way, where's the clearest example of the comforter? Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see the work of the comforter. Peter comes out. All 120 come down when they're filled with the Spirit and they speak with other languages. They come down, they stand in the streets and they're speaking 16 different languages and the people come up and mock them and say, what are you doing? And Jesus says, we're not drunk. You listen to me. And he preaches and 3,000 people are converted. And remember what he says to them. Two times he says, you're the ones who killed the prince of life. That's pretty hard to say to a group of 3,000 people when you are a dramatic minority. That'd be like going to Afghanistan or going to Iraq, going to Iran or an Islamic country and standing up at the famous area where everyone's there and they're all wearing their Islamic dress and then you come in and say contradictory and blasphemous statements against their religion and their prophet. That's what he does. Peter in Acts chapter 2, where did he get that strength from? Just remember, less than two months earlier, he denied the Lord three times in front of a little girl. Little girl says, hey, you were with him too? I heard you. I heard you with them. Huh, what? And then out comes a string of expletives from this man. He can't even stand up to a little girl. Two months later, he stands up to the whole world. You explain that? It's called the comforter. The one who comes with power. The one who comes to say, I'll make you strong enough to go up against fire. And you can be burnt like Mrs. Prest, who in Fox's Book of Martyrs was one of the last people to be murdered by that wicked Queen Mary. Mary. 
in the 1500s when they were murdering Christians and Mrs. Press was an uneducated 54-year-old woman whom the book describes as short and stout. She was fat and short and the people mocked her because she was ugly, uneducated, and fat. And she stood up against all of them. And you've got to read the account in that book. We're doing that in our men's book group. If any of you want to join us next Friday night, we're going to get to that story. It's fantastic. And this, this woman stands up against all of them and says, I don't fear anything you can do to me. And they eventually tie her to a stake and burn her. And the last line that John Fox records is, there was not a more glorious martyr in the history of the church. How can you explain that? An uneducated, old, fat, 54-year-old woman who testifies to Christ and has been with Jesus for 480 years now. 460 or so. How can you explain that? But the comforter came to her. Don't you want that comfort? That's the kind of power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Well, he has a work of conviction. He has a work of guiding into truth or teaching. He has a work of glorifying Christ. Now, let me bring out some observations about these works in closing. Number one, let me ask you, what are these works not? Look at that list there. You can see it in your Bibles, verse 7, verse 8, verse 13, and verse 14. What are these works not? They're not several things. What are they not? They are not entertaining There is nothing about these works that will appeal to the unconverted man. Nothing. The unconverted man will not say, oh, you'll give me strength to fight with my sin? I like that. Goats don't want that. Goats are happy with their sin. Goats are like the pig in 2 Peter 2 verse 22. They have leave their mud just long enough To come right back to it. They like their mud. They don't leave it. They're like the man in Proverbs 24, 16. The just man falls seven times, but he gets up again. But the fool stays in his folly. There's nothing entertaining about these works. Brothers and sisters, guard yourselves when you leave here. Don't you go to a church that is built on entertaining you. You find a church that emphasizes these works of the Spirit, this comforting, this convicting, this guiding, and this glorifying. That's how you know you found the ministry of the Spirit. If you go to a place where you say, oh, that was so fun, you're probably not at a place filled with the Spirit. Read church history. That's one of the reasons why I love in our songbook, we have songs from Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists. We have songs from Baptists and non-denominational. We have men and women, old and young. We have modern songs and old songs because I want us to remember the true Christian faith has persevered through many years by the power of the Holy Spirit. But these days we have one of the worst false doctrines that's destroying the Christian church. And it is the idea that Jesus came to make you have a good time. Your goal at church should be to go stand. That was fun. There is nothing in the Bible that can honestly be described as fun. There are great pleasures. Pleasures that will boggle your mind and overwhelm you. In fact, in Song of Solomon, that will even intoxicate you. But there's nothing like, oh yeah, I played ball. That was fun. Our Christian religion deals with these great things. And if you've entered a church or a ministry 
that is entertaining or merely entertaining, then you have not found a place filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's move on for sake of time very quickly. What are these works? Let me give you three marks of the Holy Spirit's works. Number one, they are spiritual. I had actually intended this to be, these three marks to be the whole message. All of that was supposed to be the introduction. Number one, what are these marks? Notice that they are all spiritual. They are rational. They are intellectual. They deal with the mind, will, and heart. They deal with the image of God in man. They are all spiritual works. This is the most important part of man because your, your spirit controls where your body goes. Your body will live in eternity either in endless flame or in eternal joy and glory and bliss with the eternal body of the Lord Jesus who, yes, today has a body. The same glorified body that the disciples saw in Acts chapter 1. That same body is preserved in heaven. And our bodies, when we are resurrected, 1 John 3 verse 2, we will be like him for we will see him just like he is. And that body will go on forever. What are you going to do with it? Your spirit determines it. Your spirit, your mind, your will, your memory, your passions. It is that part of man that determines what happens to your body for all eternity. Then Isaac Watts wrote a very important book. It's called The Improvement of the Mind. Isaac Watts was a Puritan, a Congregationalist pastor who lived in the 1730s, 1740s. Amy and I are finishing up his book right now, The Improvement of the Mind. Why? We want our minds to be sharp because the Holy Spirit does his work where? In the mind and heart and soul of the man. He comforts in the soul. He guides. He glorifies in the mind and the rational faculties. The Christian religion is a rational religion where we must devote ourselves to learning. On Tuesday nights, we're having our theology class on how to preach. We just began last Tuesday. This coming Tuesday night, I'm going to go through the entire New Testament every time they mention preaching. And what, I'm just going to tell you up front what you're going to see. You men who are going to be there, you get a little preview. You're going to see overwhelmingly, the Greek verb that is used overwhelmingly to describe biblical preaching in the New Testament is what? Teaching. Overwhelmingly. Because in the Christian religion, God puts an emphasis on loving the Lord your God with your mind. Not only with your mind, also with your heart and soul and strength. But don't forget the mind. And that's our first point here is that The work of the Holy Spirit is spiritual. Number two, the work of the Holy Spirit is essential. That's why Jesus says, it's better for you that I leave. Oh, because you have have only reached this level of spiritual immaturity. You're fighting about who's the greatest. But if I leave you, another one will come. And an essential work will be done in your hearts. This work of the Spirit can't be purchased at game. You can't get it from a counselor or a therapist. About the time, just before the time, of the charismatic revival, began the revival of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. There can be some wisdom that can be learned by studying psychology, but the presuppositions behind it, the idea that man, everything that's in man, can be determined and helped by an earthly physical counselor, completely ignores what's being taught here. Man is a spirit, and man's spirit needs to be uh, given spiritual solutions. 
I was asked yesterday to counsel a troubled girl who's having great difficulty with depression because her mother died and she can't handle it. How are you going to deal with that problem by saying, here's some pills? She has a spirit inside that body and she's going to need spiritual help. And I told her that yesterday, right with the social worker sitting there. I said, I understand the social worker is going to give you pills and exercises, but the only thing that's going to fix your depression is spiritual help. Spiritual problems must be dealt with with the spiritual solution. And that is what we see in these works of the Holy Spirit. And number three, the works of the Holy Spirit parallel and complement the works of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Notice that he's a comforter. He gives strength going to the battle. That parallels the king who leads us to defeat all of our sinful enemies. All of the sins that are in our hearts. Christ and his kingship leads us to conquer them. And the Holy Spirit as the comforter leads us to conquer them. He convicts us of sin. That follows with the priesthood of our Lord Jesus He guides us into all truth that follows the prophetic ministry of Christ who teaches us all truth and he glorifies Christ. How's that fit? Come back three weeks and I'll tell you. The works of the Holy Spirit fit perfectly and wonderfully with the works of our blessed Lord Jesus so that in actuality, there is no separation. In a sense, we try to separate them and say, here's the economic trinity. Oh, but that's the work of some cold theologian. You should be a worshiper and a lover and a follower and a son. And in that sense, I tell you, don't separate them. Look to Christ, look to the Spirit, look to the Father and adore them. Fall on your face in worship and adoration and then stand up and go into the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. May God give us grace to do that. Let's close our eyes. Lord Jesus, we pray that your spirit would come and help us. We are in great need of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for our coldness. Forgive us for being like the disciples 2,000 years later. They had the excuse of saying the spirit was not given to them, but we have no excuse. So forgive us. Wash us and cleanse us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.